Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Governor Malloy once unveiled a hefty transportation plan. What happened to it? Later this hour, we'll talk with transportation advocate Jim Cameron, who will break down Malloy's proposals announced a while back to ramp up roads and rail in Connecticut. Cameron will explain why significant changes to infrastructure have stalled. Also, the Senate and House have passed two different bills to change the tax code. How do they impact higher education, colleges, students, and graduates? The Washington Post Daniel Douglas Gabriel will tell us coming up. First, WNPR's reporting project in Puerto Rico continues. The island next door focuses on the recovery efforts post-Hurricane Maria and Connecticut's close relationship with the island. WNPR's news director Jeff Cohen and reporter Ryan Karen King returned to the island for a second trip last week. Jeff Cohen joins us now to talk about the people they've met and the stories they've uncovered over the last 10 days. Jeff, welcome back to where we live. Good morning, Lucy. So how does it look on the ground? You know, it's a good question. The minute we got here, and we're in Old San Juan right now, the minute we got here, we noticed, you know, more line workers. Old San Juan was nearly completely dark about five or six weeks ago when we first were here. Now it's uh, at nighttime. There are many more lights. The streets are are lit and the restaurants are starting to open. Stores are starting to open. And in fact, tourists uh, are starting to come. We were here uh, late last week when 7,000 people got off tourist boats filling the streets briefly of Old San Juan. So things are starting to normalize a bit, uh, but then whenever you uh, go to other parts of the island, uh, even just you know around in and around San Juan or outside of San Juan, a town called Bayamon, people are still without power. People in many cases are still without water. Uh, on the highways, you see people constantly uh, driving with supplies, MREs, trucks full of bottled water. So, you know, on the one hand, power is coming up in many places. And on the other hand, in very, very many other places, power is not. And supplies and basic services are still, you know, relatively in need. That might be surprising to our listeners, Jeff, to hear that tourists are arriving in San Juan. So they're okay with the amenities in the hotels there? You know, uh, it depends on where you go. uh, I'm trying to hook up with some tourists who are here, but I think they've probably left by now. But they were here for a wedding. But some tourists were a little iffy about it, about even getting off the boat who we spoke with, because they felt maybe conflicted a little bad about getting off this, you know, fancy cruise liner onto an island that really is suffering. Um, You know, Lucy, one other place we visited was a town called Orocovis, which is up in the mountains of of central Puerto Rico. And we went there to visit an after-school program. So tell us about the children there and the staff. Who's working there with these children? Um, what are they What are they doing? Sure. We, we found this school. It's in a town called Orokovis. It's up in the mountains. And uh, school in many parts of, of, of Puerto Rico ends at 1230. It normally would begin at 8 and end around 3. School in many places now begins at 730, ends at 1230. And that's because there's no lights. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it's, you know, it's hot and 
uh, so kids are getting out earlier than before and kids get bored and kids have nothing to do. So this is an after school program uh, that is intended uh, to help them get back to a sense of normal. And I spoke with one man, his name is Luis Santiago, and he came to pick up his grandson. It's a, a little bit difficult, you know, have, have a normality. We don't go to the, you know, to the movie. We don't go to the, to the, you know, places where before we can go, you know. But before I was was from great, but now it's a very difficult. This this after school program. There's a Connecticut connection. How did you find it in this mountain town? Sure, uh, it is. This after-school program began with some support from an organization called Save the Children. They are based in Connecticut. Uh, but if you speak with them, really, the, the type of support that they're giving is, is to a minor extent financial, but it's really experience. Uh, they do this sort of international relief work uh, and have done it for some time. And so this is, they serve as a resource for local community members who say, look, what we're hearing from parents, parents who work, parents who are looking for work, uh, is that our kids, um, without technology, without electricity, without water, are still suffering the trauma of Hurricane Maria and need to get back to some sense of, of norm- normalcy. Uh, and we could use an after-school program. And that's how we found the school, and that's what we saw when we got there. You also spoke to Eugenio Soto Santiago. What did he tell you? You know, he got to that same idea that, that kids are still very much processing what they saw Two months ago. Los primeros días que nosotros le preguntábamos qué vieron, ellos lloraban y decían. So when the children came back to school, we asked them, "What did you see? What did you experience?" And they started to talk about the wind. They started to talk about the rain. And when they opened the door and they saw all of the the destruction, they were really scared that Puerto Rico would never be the same again. You also uh, talked to him about uh, what the children have been saying since they've been back in school. Uh, what did he tell you? You know, it, it, again, what he, he touched on, and that was Eugenio Soto speaking through a translator, obviously. Uh, and what he uh, sp- said on that, Lucy, is that kids are um, they're comparing themselves a bit to nature, which, you know, all of these trees around in, in San Juan lost their leaves, and Puerto Rico lost their leaves, uh, and, but they're seeing the leaves grow back. Uh, and and they're they're noticing that and sort of taking it as a, a bit of a metaphor, even if they wouldn't even know the word metaphor at six years old. And and so here's a little bit of that. Ya se ven más felices. Ya se ven. Ya salimos. Y cuando ellos dicen, mira, Mister, ya el árbol de casa floreció. Ya aquel árbol que era de Now, with, after Maria, they are very happy to be back in school and seeing that their lives are normal even though so many things have changed they may have lost a tree in their yard but they can see an oak tree that now it's beginning to show flowers and they're not they're they're working through even though we don't have electricity and sometimes we don't have water they're returning back to that this is our new normal and they're able to handle it any idea when these children will be able to uh, go back to full-day school, Jeff? Uh, what are the parents and the administrators telling you? I think they don't really have an answer on that one, Lucy, because it's really dependent on the electricity. And in some of these mountain villages and towns and cities, really, uh, it's just a, a, a huge, huge task to get power back. When you drive around the island, what you see is power lines still everywhere and in, and, and, and in in immeasurable numbers. So it's uh, it's a long job ahead on that front. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. I'm speaking with WNPR's news director, Jeff Cohen. He and reporter Ryan Karen King are back on the island, Puerto Rico, uh, to continue the, the coverage that WNPR has been bringing you on the connection between Connecticut and Puerto Rico. Now, you also met up with uh, someone that most of our listeners are familiar with, and that's former Hartford Mayor Pedro Segarra. That's right. We spent a full day with Pedro Segarra yesterday. We went to um, we met him in the town where he has a, a home now in Rincon, which is a, a beachside town way out on the west side of the island. And then we went to visit his family super high up in the mountains in a place called Maricao, which is where his grandparents used to live. And his family still lives there. His family had to dig out from a mudslide. It took him about three or four days to even really to be able to leave their house. We went with his, we met his cousin who is a, a parish priest, and you'll hear from him later this week. We met with a cousin of his who worked at a fishery where... Uh, that was completely destroyed, a fish hatchery, and 35 or 40,000 fish just died in a flood. Um, and, uh, and so that was an interesting day yesterday. And then, you know, Lucy, one of the highlights so far was you can't always be living Hurricane Maria. Um, as, a, as a New Orleanian who, who lived through from afar, but with my family in New Orleans, Katrina, you know, that hurricane damage and things like these are, are profoundly important and they leave deep effects, but you can't live them all the time or you, you won't really stay very sane. Uh, and so we met some people, two people who had lived in Connecticut, a guy named Andres Yambo, who was in Hartford for about four years um, earlier in the 2000s, uh, a woman named Maria Enid Rodriguez, who lived in New Britain for 25 years. She's still got family in Connecticut. And they are volunteers at a music house a place uh, in a town called Calle, where every Friday and Saturday night they open the doors right in the main square for free. Anybody who wants to come in can come in. Uh, if you want a beer, that's all you pay for. Uh, and it is, an, um, uh, the, the house was packed. The room was packed, uh, full of people singing, celebrating. It's Christmas season. People are starting to get uh, into the Christmas song mode, um, full of uh, guitars and cuatros, which is the, the Puerto Rican stringed instrument, um, percussion instruments, and it really was a celebration of music and life. And it's a chance, as one person said, for everybody just to breathe and to come together and celebrate. And that was really an inspiring way to spend an evening. Where are you headed to next, Jeff? Today we're going to get some work done and go around and do some more photography. Tomorrow we are going way out uh, to the eastern part of the island to a town called Fajardo where ferries leave uh, to various destinations, island destinations. Uh, and we're going to be looking into a little bit more of that angle of tourism uh, until we come back uh, later in the week. I'm curious, Jeff, I was talking with someone about uh, WMPR's reporting project, uh, The Island Next Door, and someone was saying to me that they haven't been seeing a lot of coverage in uh, mainstream media. And I'm curious, are you running into other reporters on, on, on the ground there? <laughs> That's a funny story. Um, only once have we run into former reporters, well, other reporters. I should say we actually have a, an informal partnership with a news organization here who let us use their office. So, uh, in that, we, and we've done that once, and they're very nice people at a, at a website called Noticel. Um, but in terms of other uh, mainland reporters, the only time we did was we're, we're working on a story about people who are um, unfortunately living in a, in a floodplain and have lived there for 30 years. Um, and 
that story is ongoing, and we went back there a couple of days ago because which we heard that Governor Rosselló of Puerto Rico and Governor Cuomo of New York were going to be visiting and in town, and we walked all through the town, and finally we found them uh, with a community organizer there, and there we were. It was like a standard uh, press scrum with cameras that flew in from New York. The New York Daily News was there uh, and cameras locally. But other than that one press event, which was a press event, uh, I, I would say it's fair to say we haven't seen anybody else. The last time I talked to you, Jeff, uh, uh, people on the island were mistaking you and Ryan for aid workers. Are they still doing that or, do they, or are they surprised to see reporters from Connecticut? Uh, they're not mistaking us for aid workers quite so much anymore. But I think they are surprised. And and I don't say this to um, what I think what I think I hear most from them is and we heard this yesterday from Pedro's cousin, Pedro Segarra's cousin is a plea to, to not let their stories um, be unheard, which sounds dramatic. But there's a sense here that that with fed with some aspects of the federal government pulling back the military leaving and uh, or pulling out in small part uh, in some part and uh, FEMA perhaps changing its orientation that will lose our focus uh, as a society on the island, which is still largely without power and still largely without water in many places. And we've heard that concern a lot. And so people um, are kind of grateful, which is uh, feels good, but that's not why we do it. We do it because it's an important story. And this is a story that is important to many of our residents uh, in the state of Connecticut. And that's uh, why we're continue, continuing the project. That's WNPR's Jeff Cohen. For more reporting from Jeff and reporter Ryan Karen King, you can go to theislandnextdoor.wmpr.org. Jeff, thanks so much. We'll see you soon. You're welcome. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, bills to overhaul the tax code have passed along party lines in both the U.S. House and Senate. And already lawmakers and others are promising a reckoning, so to speak, during the 2018 midterm elections. Now, which proposals specifically impact higher education, from colleges to students to graduates? The Washington Post Daniel Douglas Gabriel will join us after the break. And you can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Republicans in both the House and Senate have passed legislation to overhaul the tax system. Reports say the Senate version will add more than $1 trillion to the national deficit over the next decade. The next step is for lawmakers to find a way to combine the proposals before the president signs it into law. Now, Mr. Trump wants to do that before Christmas. Which proposals in the bills will impact higher education? And among them, which have the staying power to land in that final bill? For more, we're joined, by Dan- we're joined now by Daniel Douglas 
Douglas Gabriel. She covers higher education for The Washington Post. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to get to. So I understand the House passed their bill uh, earlier in November. The Senate just did it uh, late uh, Friday, uh, Saturday morning. Before we get to the Senate bill, let's talk a little bit about the specific proposals in the House bill that would impact higher education. Um, Something that's gotten a lot of attention, of course, are the graduate student tuition waivers. Can you describe that for us? Sure. So the House bill proposes a tax on graduate tuition waivers. Now, this is the money that schools give graduate teacher assistants and research assistants as it's somewhat of a compensation for them working as teaching and research assistants. This is in addition to the stipends, annual stipends that they normally received. So what this would mean is, say someone was in a program where their stipend is $20,000 a year, but the tuition that they are being, that they their school's covering is about, say, $30,000 a year. Now, instead of them being taxed on that $20,000 a year, they'd be taxed on the full fifty thousand dollars a year. Now, for someone who's actually only seeing that $20,000 a year, that increase could mean a lot of money and could create a bit of a chilling effect on people wanting to achieve or attend uh, graduate schools to pursue an advanced degree because it's too expensive. And how have grad students reacted across the country? I think some have have walked out or done protests. Oh, yeah. They've mobilized. Uh, The minute the bill was released, they started to organize around this issue. And last week, we saw graduate students across the country leaving their class rooms, protesting the idea of, of their tuition waivers being taxed. And I think their voices were heard by the Senate. And that's why we didn't see it in the Senate tax bill, because people were very much concerned about how this would affect research. Uh, you have to think that many of these graduate students are in STEM fields where their research is very critical to the country. And if we were to create a, an additional barrier for them to be able to pursue not only their degree, but to be able to be a, a assist in the development of further research in this country, it would be bad for the economy as a whole. How does this impact international students? I mean, there are international students who can benefit from some of these uh, teaching fellowships and research fellowships. So they would certainly see um, see an impact from this as well. On the flip side, is there an argument for taxing these waivers? Well, you know, I've heard some conservative think tanks say that why should we uh, show more of a value to this form of work versus any other? Why should this particular group get a carve out? And that's kind of the idea behind the House bill. And unfor- luckily for graduate students, Senate is not seeing it in that exact same framework. When we're talking about graduate students, I know some are listening to the show right now. How many people are we talking about in the country that could be impacted by this? Again, you mentioned in the Senate version, we'll be mm-hmm. talking about uh, in a couple of minutes, more in depth, uh, that it's not included. It's still in the House, but they have to reconcile that before uh, the president signs it. So it's not exactly off the table. Not exactly. Uh, there are about 145,000 graduate students who would be affected by this if it were to go forth. There is, you know, some comfort for graduate students that very many Senate Republicans, including Tim Scott from South Carolina, have said that they have no interest in seeing this make it into the final bill. And I think with all the different aspects to reconcile during the conference committee, if they were to go that route, uh, this is not the uh, top priority. 
Um, you've also written um, grad students uh, feel like they have a bullseye on their backs, not just specific <laughs> to this uh, this waiver um, getting taxed. So what are some other concerns they have? I think more broadly, we've seen a lot of policy within this bill as well as outside of it that are trying to limit the amount of money b- grad students can borrow. For instance, there was the introduction of the uh, reauthorization of the Higher Education Act on Friday in the House. And for the first time, well, in, a, in many years, there is a move to place a cap on how much grad students can borrow on the federal level. Now, this bill is proposing $28,000 a year. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, except for the fact that the average graduate tuition is around 30000 at public universities and forty at private. So that would barely just cover uh, tuition for most students. What that would mean is that they would be pushed into the private market, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just that it doesn't have as many consumer protections as federal loans. This is where we live. Uh, We're looking at the uh, tax overhaul bills passed in the House and Senate uh, with Washington Post reporter Danielle Douglas-Gabriel. She covers higher education. Um, If you're concerned about how this impacts you um, as a current student or someone who is a graduate and has uh, certain loans, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, certain deductions that that some lawmakers have suggested be eliminated. You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. There's also something called uh, the idea of consolidating tax credits, uh, getting rid of something called the lifetime learning credit. Can you walk us through that? Yes. So this is another uh, benefit that actually is for graduate students. So the House plan had called for the consolidation of the three tax credits that exist and kind of beefing up one of them, the American Opportunity Tax Credit, to include a fifth year. That fifth year would be a bit of a bone thrown to grad students, but let's be honest, doctoral programs last far longer than uh, just five years. So it's it's kind of cutting them out of this tax benefit that many people were able to benefit from. It's not a lot of money necessarily, but for a graduate student who, again, say is has a stipend of twenty or $30,000 a year, every bit counts. And so very many of them were disappointed to see themselves being cut out of this benefit. I really do believe their efforts to mobilize may have made a difference because we did not see that aspect of the House plan in the Senate bill. We've been talking a lot about um, impacts on graduate students, but when we look at repealing uh, deductions for student loan interest, that affects an even bigger pool of people. Lots of people in this country take out loans to go to college. They're paying them well into their 40s and 50s at times. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, if you think about it, the latest information we've seen on that is in 2015, maybe 12 million Americans took advantage of this tax credit. That's about three in 10 uh, student loan borrowers. Now, it's, let's, be, let's be clear, this, this is not a huge deduction for for the average person. It's about maybe $200 or so. But uh, when you think about the fact that people are paying for their homes, they're taking care of their kids. Daycare. Daycare, (laughs) yes. Every little bit helps. And it's not just millennials who have debt. There are senior citizens who are still paying back not only their college debt, but helping whatever they did for help their children or grandchildren. So this people need to be able to, to really, or at least they've told me that they feel that they need every bit of help with this sort of debt as they can possibly receive. Now, when we get uh, closer to the Senate tax bill that was passed uh, early Saturday morning, we've already mentioned some of the things that aren't included in this version versus the the House. But since there's a lot of information, uh, maybe you could uh, repeat it again. 
in terms of this uh, taking away the uh, student loan interest deductions not in the Senate bill? No. So the big things that are not in the Senate bill is the interest deduction, Mm -hmm. um, the consolidation of the three tax credits, and also uh, the graduate tax waiver not in there. What has made it to the Senate bill that was also in the House bill is a imposed excise tax on the endowments of private universities. Now, this is an interesting one. So initially, it was proposed that um, any school with more than 500 students and whose uh, endowment was about 100,000 per full-time student would be would have to deal with this particular tax. Then after a little wrangling by some <laughs> college lobbyists, it, the threshold was raised to 250,000. That still affected about 60 or 70 schools. So by the time we got to the Senate, uh, there was an interesting amendment uh, introduced, I think, last week to carve out one private university, Hillsdale College, which has been the beneficiary of quite a lot of money from the education secretary and some other conservative groups. That amendment was knocked down, but that led to an increase of the threshold yet again from 250,000 to 500,000. That's cut down the number of schools pretty significantly. But at this point, I think people are most concerned about the precedent that this sets. It's not just that um, Harvard, Yale, and some other big-name schools might get taxed. It's that this may usher in a potential taxing of other schools down the road if they were to revisit this idea. And that really frightens a lot of higher education people. I I think you've mentioned in your reporting a school in Georgia that could be impacted. Yes. So luckily, this school, Agnes Scott, was, luckily for them, was cut out of the Senate proposal. Now, there's still a reconciliation of the House and Senate proposal. And and Senate proposal and under the House proposal, Agnes Scott, which is this private liberal arts school in in Georgia that primarily serves a lot of low-income students, a lot of students of color, and they use a lot of their endowment earnings to try to keep the costs down for students. There was also a college in Kentucky by the name of Berea College. Now, it's an interesting school because they use their endowment earnings to cover tuition for all students. No one there pays tuition because it's covered by the school. So when they saw themselves kind of put into this category of wealthy school that doesn't really care about its students. The president there told me he was pretty surprised, especially since maybe a month, a few months ago, they were kind of held up as the poster child for exactly what schools should be doing in terms of using their money to help address address college affordability. So the Senate bill seems to address schools like that but the House bill doesn't. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how those two things are reconciled. When we talk about the Harvards, the Princetons, the Yales, uh, their endowments are so huge, mm-hmm. but if they have to end up paying tax on these endowments, is it likely that you'll see less scholarships being awarded? I mean, is that a possibility? It's entirely possible. I mean, you you got to remember schools like Harvard and Princeton and Yale, they cover all tuition and expenses for students whose parents earn less than 65000 some of them 125000 So if you were to impose a tax on them, we may see that calculation change and that could affect the low-income students that they do uh, they do welcome onto their campus. Now, the argument here is that they don't welcome that many low-income students, at least not enough to really make that tax, uh, at least not enough to make that their position very, uh, I don't know, very, very uh, difficult for, for people to, to swallow. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as well in the, in the conference committee. 
Uh, We've been talking about the tax overhaul bills with uh, Danielle Douglas-Gabriel. She covers higher education for the Washington Post. Uh, But there's also, again, you mentioned earlier, a higher education reauthorization bill. Uh, Can we talk a little bit about some of the proposals to change uh, higher education in this country? Some positives, maybe. Well, you know, there is a lot of uh, flexibility that schools will be would be given under this bill in order to uh, do financial aid counseling, make sure the students aren't borrowing more than they actually could be able to pay back based on what their major is. There's a lot of simplification of the financial aid forms that students um, submit in order to get loans and grants. So all those things are great positives. There are also caps being placed on the amount that students can borrow. Uh, for undergraduates, they would actually see a slight increase in their the amount that they can take out per year. Graduate students, as we mentioned earlier, would see a cap. Now, on the one hand, this could be a really good thing because a lot of people, especially within conservative circles, think that because as it stands right now, graduate students can borrow unlimited amounts of money to go to school, that schools are raising tuition because there's nothing to stop them. Now, with this kind of cap imposed, perhaps it'll start to get universities to start putting uh, the brakes on tuition increases on the graduate level. However, there's the private market. There is a thriving private market for uh, finance and graduate education, so there's no real barrier for them to be able to take out that money. Uh, The other thing I think is really interesting is there's a cap, going to be a cap on parent loans. Now, parent loans is a very controversial thing. On the one hand, it's a very expensive loan product, and it makes a lot of money for the federal government. But on the other hand, it uh, gives a lot of people who don't necessarily have the means of paying this money back. It settles them with quite a bit of debt, and a lot of people are very uncomfortable with this. Another really good part of this bill is it would do away with what are known as origination fees. So the government charges you a percentage of a loan in order to uh, make that loan for you. Now, the House is calling for the end of that, which would be very beneficial to parents who want to take out because the origination fees on parent loans are around 6% or 4% right now. And that's kind of high. Now, there's also a question surrounding the future of the public student loan forgiveness program. So what is this program specifically, and who who are we talking about would be impacted? So this is a public sector um, program, right? It's supposed to encourage people to go into fields like being a public defender, being teachers, social workers, and such, by promising to erase whatever debt they have left over after 10 years of on-time payments. Now, this has been an issue uh, in conservative circles trying to get rid of this program for at least the last year or so. Many people think that it overwhelmingly benefits doctors and lawyers who eventually will make enough money to pay back their loans. That's the argument. But there are a lot of teachers, social workers, and others who are taking advantage of this, and they would hate to see this go away. The other issue, and this I think was one of the more surprising parts of this higher education reauthorization bill, is it would call for the end of all loan forgiveness in a program called income-based repayment. Now, a lot of people right now, in order to keep them current on their loans while to make sure that they don't Uh, become overwhelmed, especially when you're coming right out of college, you may not have a job that's paying you a lot of money. Uh, This this program allows you to pay, repay your debt based on a percentage of your earnings. Now, there's the promise that after 20 or 25 years, depending on what iteration of the program you're in, whatever's left over would be forgiven. This bill would get rid of that aspect of it. But what it would do as an offset to that 
is cap the amount of interest that you pay on the loan. So you pay no more than I think about 10 years of, of interest on the loan, even if you keep paying for 20 years. And not enough people think that that's a good uh, a solution to to the getting rid of the loan forgiveness aspect. And I've heard a lot of people, a lot of people emailed me or called me over the weekend, very concerned about what that would mean. Now, this wouldn't affect anyone who's currently in the system. This would affect people who'd want to enroll in these programs after 2018. When we're talking about the public student loan forgiveness program and the impact on teachers, the trickle-down effect for K-12 through education. Yes, you have to keep in mind that there are a lot of teachers from either, you know, pre-K all the way to to high school who rely on these programs in order to manage their debt. And you have to also remember that there are a lot of jurisdictions right now that are requiring teachers to pursue advanced degrees in order to increase their pay or, or this is a mandated aspect. So you have teachers going to graduate school and facing even more debt but there's the promise of public service loan forgiveness. But there's also many states that offer uh, tuition remission or a student loan repayment programs. But that's starting to go away in some cases as states face uh, tax revenue issues. They're looking at places to cut, and some of these programs may not make it on uh, may not make it further than where they are right now. And so a lot of teachers are concerned. When we look at uh, the state of pre, uh, pre-K pre and preschool uh, in this country, certain states, I think even Connecticut, have been looking at whether or not they should require these teachers to have a master's in early childhood. That can that takes a hit, too, in terms of the kind of pay they get working in, in preschool and pre-K mm-hmm. and how they're able to not get this type of, of uh, benefit in the future. Certainly. I mean, I've heard from a lot of teachers that you know, they enjoy being able to teach this population. They could see the merits of pursuing advanced credits. But at the same time, if they're not making more than fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a year and owing forty to $50,000 in debt while they're maintaining their own family and taking care of other priorities, it just isn't as, as appetizing. And so this is another place we might see a chilling effect. Mm-hmm. There are teacher shortages across this country. It, you know, some people may question, is this the time that we want to take away more incentives for people to join this particular field when we need them? One person we haven't talked about, Danielle, is Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. What has she accomplished so far? Uh, she has been able to dismantle a lot of Obama's legacy. It, there isn't a lot of new things that she has proposed. I will say that, you know, recently she, her um, one of the financial aid chiefs at the Education Department has proposed interesting things like simplifying the FAFSA, which is the financial aid form, mm-hmm. uh, creating a mobile app to get more kids to participate and make sure that they have access to loans and grants. And that's great. Uh, as far as as efforts to really change higher education, a lot of what she's done is kind of take away things that were promised and proposed a repeal of further things. She has an agenda to try to push uh, vouchers and such, and she has continued to march forward on that. And I think the Higher Education Act uh, reauthorization is a nod to many of her wishes on that front on the higher education front as well. Uh, she has tried to repeal several laws that are targeting for-profit schools, mainly trying to prevent bad actors within the sector from being able to take advantage of students. And we've seen in this higher education bill that a lot of the regulations that were addressing those, those particular schools would be gone. 
Anything else on your radar, Danielle? Again, we've been focusing specifically on uh, the tax overhaul bills and this Higher Higher Education Reauthorization Act. Mm -hmm. But as someone who follows higher education in the country, you know, what is the mood in Washington in terms of how to change and make improvements to the system? I think there's a general idea that uh, four-year degrees are what are they? The bachelor's, uh, I forgot what this, the education secretary called this. Mm-hmm. Oh, the bachelor's addiction. Mm-hmm. So there is an idea that traditional college and four-year college is over, is is kind of overdone. We we are telling students to go into this where it doesn't really fit them. We should be encouraging them to go into career training and to go into vocational programs. And we're going to see a bit of a shift in interest and attention and policy and money going towards career education and career training and it's which is not necessarily a bad thing at all it's just it shouldn't be at, to the detriment of um of bachelor's degrees and master's degrees there is a body of research that has shown the benefits of a college education to the economy and i think a lot of that is being lost in this conversation of picking winners and losers where we should look at making sure the entire sector is properly funded and properly prepared to educate uh, America's future workers. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel covers higher education for the Washington Post. Danielle, thanks for coming on. We appreciate your analysis. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we shift to roads, bridges, and rail. The state faces continuous budget deficits, and money for a special fund to pay for specific transportation projects is drying up fast. So what's the solution? Transportation advocate Jim Cameron has some ideas. That's after the break, and you can join the conversation, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, each of us has food we don't like, but for some, a bite of the wrong type of food can be deadly. On the next Where We Live, food allergies, how common have they become? We'll get into the science, what causes this health problem to the personal. What's it like to live with severe food allergies? And we want to hear from you, too. You can join the conversation. That's tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, from time to time, we ask commissioners of state agencies to come on the show to answer our questions and yours. Transportation issues impact all of us. Now, Where We Live's invited Connecticut's DOT Commissioner James Redeker on the show multiple times. Our latest request has gone unanswered by his office, but we're going to keep keep trying. Meanwhile, someone who spends a fair amount of time tracking and studying transportation is Jim Cameron. He's a rail commuter advocate who served on the Connecticut Metro North Rail Commuter Council and more recently founder of the Commuter Action Group. Jim, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you. Now, back in the spring, you wrote uh, in one of your uh, blog posts that it's time, the time for tolls is here. Remind us what came of the idea this past legislative session. Well, uh, it, it it came into consideration, but uh, lawmakers did not have the uh, courage to pull the trigger and enact it. Uh, they saw it perhaps more as a uh, a budget balancing mechanism when uh, most people really think it should be dedicated specifically to uh, to transportation. So more recently than that, I've been writing about how I uh, suddenly feel some empathy and sorrow for our our lame duck governor. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm 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 sorry that he uh, is not going to see into fruition any of his major transportation initiatives under this 
uh, 30-year, $100 billion let's go CT uh, wish list that he, he, he finally came up with. When we're talking about the let's go CT, a, ve- a very expansive uh, expansive plan, remind us what was in it, Jim, and uh, what are some of the, uh, I guess, the big letdowns if we don't see some of these projects uh, begin? Well, I don't like to call it a plan because it wasn't a plan as much as it was a, lo- a wish list, a laundry list of any kind of any number of projects. There was something in Let's Go CT for everyone in the state, not just for people in Fairfield County uh, who need improved uh, roads and rails, but uh, even up in the quiet corner, there was stuff for Norwich, etc. So it was a, a statewide vision of how to invest in infrastructure, in improved roads, uh, widening 95 all the way from the New York to the Rhode Island line, uh, adding more rail service on Metro North. Um, a couple of the things that were in the plan are actually going to come to fruition. One of them is the, the new commuter rail line that's going to be running from New Haven to Springfield. That should be opening in May of uh, next year. But uh, some of the uh, more grandiose ideas are, are just dead on arrival because we don't have the money. We don't have the money today to keep going with what we have. I mean, the Special Transportation Fund, which is the uh, the pot of money that's used to, to pay for maintenance of the roads and to, to keep uh, the, the subsidies going on, on our commuter rails, is literally running out of money. If we, if uh, lawmakers were to agree to tolls, that could be something that could fund the Special Transportation Fund? Well, you know, when the governor came up with his uh, Let's Go CT plan, he was uh, smart enough, clever enough, conniving enough not to say how he was going to fund it. He left that decision to a special blue ribbon panel, uh, Transportation Funding Task Force. So, uh, you know, they could people could blame them for whatever they came up with. There's no popular way to pay for what we're getting now for free but should really come with a cost. So whether it's tolls or taxes or uh, a dedicated sales tax or a payroll tax uh, or wrapping all of our vehicles, trains included in advertising uh, or recapturing the increased value of property near train stations um, through the property tax, none of those are popular. Any one or two or three of them would be enough to fund the governor's uh, wish list of transportation ideas, but none of them are going to happen until uh, the cynical uh, taxpayer realizes and is assured that that money will only be spent on transportation. The, the special transportation fund has been rated in the past to like a petty cash box every time they need to balance the budget. So there's no appetite for increased revenue sources until we know that there is a pick-proof lockbox on the Special Transportation Fund, and we don't have that yet. Jim Cameron's a rail commuter advocate who served on the Connecticut Metro North Rail Commuter Council, more recently founded the Commuter Action Group. Uh, Jim, could the question of this lockbox go before voters in referendum? Well, uh, yes, it is supposed to probably be on a referendum next November uh, as we vote for governor and vote for uh, our congressional delegation. Uh, that question of a lockbox is going to be on the referendum, assuming that the legislature takes another vote when they come back earlier this year. They have to vote two sessions in a row to put it on the referendum. 
But the question is, is what's being proposed as a lockbox really a lockbox? Republicans think it is a sieve. It's easily picked. In other words, unless things are very specifically defined as to what transportation spending should be, and I think most people think that means fixing potholes and and, keeping the trains going, Uh, if it's not properly defined, the Republicans, who initially proposed this lockbox idea, are going to vote against it. And if there's confusion on the part of voters when they go to the polls in November, should I vote for the lockbox, should I not vote for the lockbox, uh, I think their cynicism is going to win out and it's going to get defeated. And then we're back to square one. It's a pretty bleak picture, Jim. Well, I'm just telling you the truth. Don't shoot the messenger here, Lucy. I'm just trying to be honest with you. And 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 I have no ambitions for running for higher office. Uh, so I'll I'll tell you the truth. You know, the only thing I run for is the train occasionally. But uh, I got no stakes in this aside from trying to be honest with you. Uh, as are other journalists that, that, that cover the whole budget writing process. Now, when we're looking at some of uh, the problem areas in transportation, uh, there's still talk of widening I-95. There is, and I'm not uh, crazy about that idea. Uh, I remembered when that was being proposed by the governor that that idea had been floated previously, and a study had been done. You know, when, uh, when we don't want to make a decision in Hartford, we study an issue, and uh, I can't tell you how many millions of dollars have been spent over the years on studies of transportation ideas that the legislature didn't have the guts to vote for, and those studies basically sit gathering dust in some shelf in the state library someplace. So I went looking for that study that was done in 2004. That's when Governor Rowland had proposed the idea of using the breakdown lane, the, the fourth lane, as uh, on I-95. And I got to tell you, it was really hard to find that study. It's as if somebody had deliberately misfiled it, but I found it. And that study said that uh, widening the highway by using the breakdown lane was a bad idea because the lanes would have to be narrowed from 12 feet to 11 feet. They predicted a 60% increase in traffic accidents. And that they said that the speed on the highway was only going to increase from 27 miles an hour to 31 miles an hour. So I don't think the solution to traffic congestion on 95 is widening the highway. I think the solution, because the highway is right next to the trains, is to add more parking at the train stations, increase the frequency of service on Metro North and Shoreline East, and encourage people to get off the highway and take the train instead. Now, you mentioned that the rail line between New Haven and Springfield will be up by next May. Um, what's been coming out of the hearings in terms of reasonable fares, uh, frequency of trains? Will there be enough parking at train stations? Well, i, I got to give uh, the governor and the DOT credit. I think they've done uh, a great job at building this line. There will be plenty of parking at the train stations. Uh, the fares are reasonably uh, priced. I think the one-way fare from uh, Hartford to New Haven is going to be eight bucks, uh, and the fares are comparable to the in-state fares on Metro North. Uh, there will be a train every 45 minutes in rush hour, uh, every 90 minutes outside of rush hour, uh, and that service can be expanded if the uh, if the ridership is there. I think that uh, initially it's going to be a, a bit of a slow build to get 
uh, riders on those trains. But clearly, they're they're planning ahead by building that rail service, which, like Metro North, which parallels 95, this rail line parallels I-91. And I think it's going to encourage people to, uh, as traffic gets worse on 91, to, you know, try taking the train. I know we're looking forward to it, Jim. And uh, before we end the seg, uh, we do know CT Fast Track, uh, which is Connecticut's first bus rapid transit system, that's been a success? CT Fast Track has been a tremendous success. Uh, it, there was a lot of skepticism about the whole idea of bus rapid transit. I supported it, even though I'm a rail guy, <laughs> because I knew that it was an, an initiative that would get people off of the highways into mass transit. There was a frequency of buses that would be every few minutes. The buses could leave the busway and go off into the local districts. I think that, uh, what was the stat I saw? Something like in the first uh, nine months of service, they had four million riders. It's been expanded to uh, Yukon uh, out east. So I think it's a, it's a very uh, a very good success story that we can look to and say, yeah, we did something right in Connecticut on transportation. I started the segment uh, mentioning that we're uh, trying to get the DOT Commissioner James Redeker on the show. What do you want to hear from him, Jim? I, I have a lot of respect for Commissioner Redeker. He has an impossible job. Uh, dealing with, uh, you know, he's like a, an emergency room doctor uh, in a hospital on a Saturday night with a full moon. You know, standing there watching these uh, these victims get wheeled in on ambulance stretchers and trying to triage what needs to be dealt with first. Uh, I, you know, I think he needs to uh, be honest with us as he I hopefully is honest with the governor. Uh, you know, I think the governor has, has told him a few things to do that he may not have necessarily as a professional believed in. But I think he's going to survive and uh, continue on into the next administration because he is a very smart, articulate, visionary man. So I, I hope he comes and, and talks on your show. He uh, is, you know, he's got a lot of answers to the to the tough questions. Well, I want to thank Jim Cameron again for coming on, a rail commuter advocate who served on the Connecticut Metro North Rail Commuter Council and also founder of the Commuter Action Group. Jim, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Lucy. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to WMPR intern Ashley Taylor. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer, Katie Tolarski. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>